0: How are you? And welcome to Q&A session four. What a wonderful couple of weeks we've had, eh? So, into product, super important. Across to price, super important, whether you do it or not. Uh, and a fascinating um, first half of the tactical execution. Uh, we've got a lot of questions. I reckon we got about, yeah, about an hour's worth, if we get cranky. Um... I'll talk to you at the end about the next two modules, which will take us up to the exam. So leave that until the end, okay? But tune in at the end for that. Um, Let's keep going. Uh, With Mr. Craig Fawcett. I love the Levi's video, especially the retro hairstyles. Yeah, it is a winner. I told you it was a winner. I wanted to ask on the task you set for part one, scoring market orientation. I thought they were good to great on the other aspects, but on market orientation, I gave them a five. They seem to jump straight to, we need to launch a premium product as a soul for the jeans market being saturated. There's also a line about Levi's being sold at moderate price points and needing to move to upper moderate to achieve growth. This, to me, seemed like sales orientation. They were focused more on revenue than the market needs. Was I being too harsh? I'd also listen, love to know if there are any other classics of the genre that you'd recommend watching. Um... Uh... Yeah... So, what to say? Um, th- there's nothing like Levi's, first of all, unfortunately, Craig. It is l- literally a legend. Um, so I'd love to tell you there's others. If you get a chance on Google, watch the Enron documentary, um, The Smartest Guys in the Room, if you haven't watched that in a while. It, it it It's probably the only thing that's better than Levi's. It isn't as marketing-based. I love it for this one moment in the Enron. and It's called The Smartest Guys in the Room. The female journalist... Forgive me, I can't remember her name. She's quite famous now. Um, she's got amazing earrings, I remember, because you sort of look at these dazzling earrings as she's being interviewed. She's clearly, she is the smartest person in the documentary. And everyone else is, like, loving uh, Enron, and she just goes in the interview, she's just brutal. She just goes, I just couldn't, she literally says, I just couldn't work out how they made money. So she wrote an article basically for Business Week, I think, saying, I don't get anyone. I don't think they're making any money. It sm- smells funny to me. And everyone literally said, oh, hey, you're an idiot. You know, you just don't get it, man. They're the best company in the world, blah, 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 blah. She was 100% right. And the guts and intellect of someone to go out on their own and go, mm, I just don't get it, you know. I-, I love that. I love that moment. But no, there's nothing as good as Levi's. Um, are you being too harsh? Uh Possibly. The, the reason I say that, Craig, is almost all the decisions you list there, um, those decisions are all strategic decisions that came from above. So I, I forget his name, but the little short fella, um, before we get to Goldstein, isn't a marketing person, right? He's the corporate strategy guy. So he's saying we need to get out of four pocket jeans. We need to move up in price point. That's not from marketing. That's from the, the, the upstairs. That's the kind of stuff we get from upstairs. It then lands on Goldstein's desk as a challenge, and that's where his market orientation begins. And the fact that he doesn't have a product to begin with and he goes out and studies the market, I think means, yeah, he's pretty good at the beginning, obviously not later on. Siobhan jumps in here and says, oh, and also, I just got a new job. Oh, this, uh, uh, oops, didn't mean to answer Craig's question. I was supposed to add this on my own. Um, I'm pretty sure in the interview I was way more confident and knew how to answer lots more of questions because of this course and we're not even finished. Woohoo! Well done, Siobhan. Um, All of you are going to find that not all of you want to leave or or get promoted or anything else, but if you do, yeah, the course is very useful because it turns out when you know more than anyone else, you're in a really good position to win jobs. And it's partly that you know everything now and partly because everyone else pretty much knows nothing. And that does breed confidence. And, and, you know, without being arrogant about it, you should be confident. So well done. Anyway, well done, Siobhan. Drinks are on you. Uh, Sarah Colquitt. Hey, Sarah. I'm a late joiner, so apologies if this is referencing earlier modules. That's fine. All your content is fantastic and makes so much sense. Here we go. Until I have to apply it to my own situation. All roads point back to research. I work in the digital health and medical device space, where market data is quite difficult to come by. Ethnography is great. We do this organically and can tweak our processes to be more targeted. That's great. Valuable as it is, it's limited to one by one. Yeah. The notion of surveying makes logical sense for big data collection. It's referenced heavily in module two. And now again for price. I love the idea of the Van Vestendel pricing model. But how does this come to life? Our organization has eight business units that at the firm level have much of the same market landscape there would be some BU crossover between contacts at the customer site and at other levels that may be completely different. So how do we as an organisation get the important market data for all BU's without bombarding the customers with a survey upon survey? This magnifies again when thinking about pricing, given that it is as granular as per product. Our company already does surveys for customer service and could also have some audience crossover as well. Can you tell I'm spiralling? I appreciate you taking taking me off the ledge. It is tricky, Sarah, right? So in your world of medical devices, pricing is a much trickier beast. Market access is probably operating in your organization. They tend to take the lead in pricing. That's no bad thing. And you've got global tenders, global reference prices. You probably want to stay out of the external pricing conversations, maybe internally try and feed in. But but that's a complex space, medical device pricing. Having said that, though, Doing the research should still be possible. My recommendation for you, though, is given you've all these business units, reverse the sequence. So do your segmentation based on secondary data and what you have, and segment the the different accounts using that meaningful, actionable grid we used in the course. That works pretty well, especially in, in medical products. Then choose your targets based on what you see in front of you. And only then go in and do the ethnos to build the portrait and the position and the buying path and everything else. That can be a good way when you can't get a survey done. In the longer term, I have to tell you, I am, uh, I've am i been seeing things the last few weeks that have blown my mind. So this synthetic data, I'll, I'll put a link to my paper on it. Um, I saw some synthetic data. Well, synthetic data is basically not AI creating pictures and all that childish stuff. AI can now go out and use language processing to basically replicate human responses to a survey without ever talking to humans. And everything we're seeing at the top business schools, not the companies selling it, I don't trust them, but at top business schools like Wharton and Columbia, where good guys like Pontoni, who's got a PhD and knows what, he's, comes back to me and says, yeah, it's 95% the same as asking consumers, and it's instantaneous. I think, genuinely, we're a couple of years away from Sarah Colquitt just going, we just plugged it into the AI, what it gave us is this, this, and this. I saw something last week from an American firm, which is all very confidential, where they basically, you just plug your brand in, they give you the category entry points, give you a portrait of someone going through the category entry point, all the quantitative numbers and everything, and it happened in one second. I'm blown away by it, and it's pretty accurate too from what I gather. So in the future, we're going to get there. In the shorter term, if you can't do a survey, do your segmentation and targeting, and then go and use your FNO to build, put flesh on the bones. That approach does have a lot of potential. Hannah Ward, I haven't finished the pricing module yet, so forgive me if the answer to my question is in the second half of the video. I understand if you have a new business like the Mini-MBA, how the Van Westendorp pricing model is very useful to get the pricing right from the get go. But what if you have an existing business where you've historically based the pricing using a less effective method and now want to do things the right way? Would you still use Van Vestendor to argue the questions that those who aren't customers? I just wonder how difficult it is to change pricing and if you'd pull them into the decision making process. Yeah, Hannah, I, I it's a great question, but it's it's not something to worry about. I've used Van Westen, I use Van Vestendor four years in to mini MBA. Um, I didn't use it at the start. I did more qualitative stuff. We used it when we were, I don't know, 1,200 quid to find out we could be 1,500 quid. Um, And it absolutely works fine. In fact, the way we use Van Vestendorp was even more dirty than that. We only asked people who'd already just paid for the course at whatever it was, 1,200 quid. Uh, And the way we phrased the question was, you've signed up, you've paid your money. Fine. We're not going to change your price. But thinking about your decision, how much would it have been? One, two, three, four. Now, that has a limitation. And the limitation is we only talked to people that were buying anyway, right? We didn't get anyone that had been put off otherwise. It's a big limitation. But from a convenience point of view, we had a thousand people. They all filled out the survey. We got some data and we were able to show even the people that have just paid 1200 quid would have paid 1,500 quid. Do you know what I mean? So we used it that way. So yes, you can use it inaccurately uh, on existing customers, and it works just fine. Finding out what the optimum price should be is not the same as then having to immediately change it. Let's say, though, I'm thinking about industries such as retailers whose entire calendar year is based on promotions and discounting. Where would you start when it comes to re-educating that deep institutional behavior around the dangers of discounting? I wouldn't. Uh, added to that, if you are the owner of a product brand, how do you navigate the reality of the retailers who drive price discounting, even though you you have set the pricing? I'm just thinking about a brand like Walmart who may be more interested in football, where volume suits their agenda versus the manufacturer who's trying to maintain brand equity. Okay, two questions. So retailers are not included in this discussion. When a retailer discounts a product they're not commodifying when Walmart discounts Gillette razor blades it's not it's not commodifying itself it's commodifying Gillette it doesn't care um and second of all it's it's eating its own margin right uh, which it's allowed to do so retailers play a different game lesego is the short answer second um what do you do when someone like Walmart discounts your product And the answer is nothing, because legally you can't do anything. Um, You've sold the product to them for whatever the supply price was. They are now legally unable to do whatever they want. You can't threaten them. You can't uh, withdraw your products. You can't do anything other than draw their attention to the recommended retail price. In almost every country in the world, it would be illegal to do anything. Um, Antitrust european union laws on price fixing and most people don't realize this at all right that's why we talked about it in the module so what do you do um there's not a lot you can do in many cases yeah there are a few exceptions but not many um so you live with it is the short answer i taught a class at mit i was just talking about it um years ago on distribution and um I, I, my whole class—I I, kind of stood out at MIT because everyone else was teaching like equation modeling, and I would I, my whole class on distribution was a photo of um, <laughs> of Costco selling Dom Perignon for twenty bucks less than it was meant to. And I asked the students to give me uh, their uh, give me their answers for what we should do about it. And every suggestion I got for ninety minutes was was either dumb or illegal or both. And at the end, the students were all like, "Well, what's the answer? What's the answer?" And it said to there isn't one, you know, there, some problems don't have solutions. Let it go. Um, and uh, that was met with general sort of, "oh," but it's true. I mean, it, it's, you know, you, you, you take the shaft because you, you may have to, uh, and, and, and that's it. Uh, let's say go again. I can definitely feel the gear change of the course as we get into the strategy phase. That's great. That's great. That's great. Um, Choicefulness is certainly not for the faint-hearted, as you realise it's now about putting the proverbial cock on the block. (laughs) Exciting and intimidating. We've spoken quite a bit about B2B and FMCG brands, I was curious to know about the experiences you had with LVMH. My first reflection is that when you start to position uber-premium high-end luxury goods, you swing a lot more towards higher-order emotional benefits. Then I was wondering if things like occasions or use can also work as a good position, like celebration, gifting, or making memorable moments what are your observations on luxury goods positioning? Also, how would you articulate the positioning of a brand like Moet or Louis Vuitton? Um, isn't that different? Let's say, go, I mean, I did the positioning with other people for, for Moet, um, a long time ago. Um, the reality is the one big difference with luxury is We tend to be less about what you want as a consumer and more about who we are as a brand, not because we're arrogant, but, but you're coming to us more. Um, Particularly when it's about the brand. You know, we're telling you who we are and what we have and everything else. Um, that was the big difference. Um, but generally speaking, it wasn't that much difference in the approach. We always went with DNA. We always studied our history a lot more in the positioning. Um, and the codes were always very distinctive as well. But generally, it wasn't that different. We're, we're just, it was more about us than it was about what the consumer wanted at that time. That was the big difference. Kerry Patton, hello. I hope this isn't too late to upload for tomorrow's session. Obviously not, Kerry. I'm curious about your insights on rejuvenating or repositioning a well-established historic brand to align it with contemporary trends without provoking negative reactions from the audience. I'm curious if you've encountered similar challenges with brands or clients and how you navigate them. Yeah, we call this, Kerry, brand revitalization. I've done it a few times, not always perfectly i did the work on lueve which is now a very revitalized brand but when we got it, it was very dusty i went to madrid and i was remember arriving in madrid i got there like five o'clock the day before we we're going to start work and i went for a walk around madrid late summer beautiful city and all the lovely beautiful spanish women 50 plus had a lueve handbag and all the other girls 30 young uh just were chanel Vuitton, dior you know No Loewe at all. I really got a sense of the challenge right there. The challenge of revitalization, um, it comes down to don't change the brand position. Change the execution. So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Go back and find out what's in this brand when it was great. Distill it. And then ask the question, what does that mean for 2024? That's the trick of revitalization. Don't reposition, don't rebrand. This brand's been around for a long time for a good reason. The, the fundamental essence is still almost always relevant. What we have to do is realize that if we don't change the expression, ironically, it becomes inconsistent. For me, that's the trick of revitalization. Um, how do you do it without negative reactions? You don't. So, with the wave and with other brands I've worked on, there's always a season where the old clients hate you. And the new clients don't like you. And you have to be ready for that. Doesn't mean you've got it wrong, it just means you're going through the process. If you then get it right, the new the new clients come in, the new girls come in, and then the old ladies, the old clients come back too. And that happened with Lueve eventually. Um, so you can't you have to break a few eggs here. It's always unpopular when you modernize a brand, even if you do it right. Marta. Hi, Mark. A question regarding the purchase funnel. What kind of research do you run to know the percentages on prefer, consider, and aware? I'm referring to your anesthesia gas example. And more, referring to awareness. Would you consider brand awareness or product awareness? Okay. So, Marta, what you do is, in a survey, you build hierarchical questions. So, you say to a bunch of anesthetists, which surgical gas are you aware of right now? And they give you four brands, right? And you say, which of these surgical gases would you consider for your next uh, operation? They give you two. You say, which one do you prefer if both are available in the operating theater? They give you one, right? And so what you're doing is you're constructing from a survey four, five, six questions that measure hierarchically what the choices are, okay? And product awareness, sure, but normally it's just brand awareness and it's normally unprompted, right? So you prompt them with the need. You're going to do, you know, I don't know, Colorectal, colorectal surgery which sealants come to mind and that's the start it's brand yeah sometimes it can get messed up it's brand normally Charles over in. hi Mark I love the course so far I particularly enjoyed the recent video you shared about smaller businesses being FC UK staying on the subject of smaller businesses some smaller businesses might not be able to invest in decent brand tracking what workaround options are there for such businesses okay I have an answer but I have to declare an interest I did some work with a New Zealand firm called Tracksuit. Uh, I think I own, and I may have got this wrong, 0.4% of the company as a result. It's not going to pay me a retirement, put it that way. But it's gone up, though, a lot in value, apparently. Anyway, Tracksuit are who you should be chasing down, Charles. Tracksuit have have now dominate the niche for smaller businesses that want to do an annual brand track, and they can do it for, like, don't quote me, but, like, $15,000. The whole thing, funnels, everything. Have a look at tracksuit. They're really good. Jack O'Flaherty. Hello, Jack. My question is off the back of jobs to be done. The example was given about the job a McDonald's milkshake did for the consumer, such as making it thicker and harder to drink so it lasts a person's whole car journey. My question is, how do you balance the different jobs to be done for different customer segments of a product when they are in conflict with each other. For example, what about the person who goes into McDonald's for a quick meal and wants to drink a milkshake without it taking 25 minutes? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, I think the jobs-to-be-done framework works best when we don't have the complications of too many segments wanting different things. I, I guess we'd go back to targeting and positioning, though, Jack. If we really did have two different segments wanting two different things the best option is to split it up and offer either two different products or even two different brands. That's not very cool. I mean, we did the pregnancy test example, you know, the talk now is all about mass marketing. I got to say, I get, I get a box of beer delivered to my house once a month with like 12 craft beers in it. And I really enjoy it. But out of the 12, normally four or five are either stouts, which I don't drink or sour beers, which I definitely don't drink. Um, and I said to the guys at the beer company, I, said, "I love what you do, but you keep sending me these shit beers and it's not even a matter of cost, right? I mean, obviously I'm paying for beer I don't drink. I can only give it to the kids or something." I'm joking. But um it's more my refrigerator is full of like this beer that doesn't go anywhere that I don't want, you know what I mean? And and the marketer said, "Look, sours are very popular, particularly with younger customers, sir." And I think the point I would make is um Segmentation still has a role to play, to your point, Jack. And when it does, maybe we need different products with different jobs to be done. Uh, Marta, hey Marta, I'm on module 7 and I'm watching the touch points and its asymmetries. How do you measure them in the B2B space? And how do I know if I'm visiting a website is more important than downloading an asset or registering to an event? Well, the first job is qualitative, right? So qualitatively, you need to understand what the touch points are. We're going to do it on you, Marta, at the end of the course. Not you individually. We're going to do it on everyone. Um, we, I've got a nice little touch point model I, I devised, which is I ask for like up to I think it's five or ten experiences. You know, here you are in module seven. Look back on the mini MBA and all the places where the mini MBA touched you in an appropriate way, um, and then we code them into boxes. And then what we do is we measure how positive or negative they were, where they come in the sequence, and we can even correlate a positive score on a touch point with an overall NPS score. So do we see that promoters have had more positives on this, this, and this? That makes them more important in driving overall satisfaction. Go through the exit survey and you'll see how it plays out. Katie Chadwick. I really enjoyed this module and felt the jobs to be done framework was really helpful in showing how segmenting by needs makes sense. Although I feel it makes sense for the examples, and I then get stuck thinking about the challenge I'm facing. I work for a creative agency and we've never bothered to do any proper marketing, as we typically focus on our clients. But I'd like to apply some. Okay, but I'd like to apply some of the learning from the mini MBA to ourselves as well as our clients. I feel the needs of our end customers could be extremely low. And there might be some crossover. So how do we go about it? Would you group needs then analyze the value of each one before you target? I'd never tried to attribute value to a segment before, so I feel that may be a challenge, but I'm willing to give it a go. I'd appreciate your view. Yeah, look, Katie, I think it's one of the ways you can segment the market is is needs based or even behavioral, right? But the way to do it is you need a big survey that asks those 10 or 12 questions. You no know, Levi's the Levi's case, that's all they did. They just asked those 12 or 15 attribute questions and then they clustered them according to the answers. You need that as the basis for the research and to build then your your segmentation. Fong Chao, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on limited time discounts, Black Friday or flash sales. I'm not sure if this will be covered in the promotions module, but I think there is an argument that a big discount offered for a short period provides a sense of urgency making people want your product. And then once they have them, they will want to buy more from your brand. Also, is there a discount level you can increase profitability or be worthwhile for the brand in another way, 10%, 25%? Or is it as simple as no discounts ever? I mean, it's not as simple as no discounts ever, Fong. It's as simple as try not to have any discounts because every time you do, you failed. It's true that things like Black Friday, it becomes more normalised. It's less damaging, I think, to your brand perceptions because everyone expects it to be cheaper. But the impact of the discount is still eviscerating. Remember that if, if, to your point, if you take 25% off your price, you're not taking 25% off your profit. Your profit margin might be 25 It probably is only about 25%. The average gross margin is like 25%, right? So you've just probably given away all of your profit. I, I spend my life, unfortunately, lecturing people in stores, right? Like, I get department stores here in Australia. Go in and buy a suit, and the woman at the car said to me, um, oh, you get 25% off this suit. And I'm like, why? And so he said, I don't know, it's on special. And I'm like, you realise you've just... There's no way you're making a 25% margin on this suit. You realise that you've just given away all your profit that I would have given you, right? You realise this is totally stupid. And also, why are you discounting it? I don't want it anymore. What's wrong with it? Why is it discounted? Well, I don't know. It's just discounted, sir. You don't want it? No, I don't want it. It seems like there's something wrong with it. Why else would you discount it? That looks like I'm a lunatic, and maybe I am. But actually, it makes what I'm saying makes perfect sense. That company has just given away all of its profit because, let's do a discount. So now, I, you know, not, not possible to avoid them completely, but try. The Sago. Question on product definition. The core, actual, and augmented was a really nice way of breaking it down. I just wonder if the piece around service tangibilization wouldn't fit neater into the augmented product. Hmm. It felt like it's a it's it is it's kept good company with what you had put there, unless of course I'm splitting hairs. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Second question is not on jeans alone, the Levi's case. I was trying to allocate the diversification, and I was oscillating between brand extension and line extension. Hmm. But since I ended up launching an entirely new brand, it's kind of a moot point. Yeah, no, it's not, it's not. I mean, you're actually, you know what, Lisego, it's such a good little point. Both points. I'm going to give you question of the week, yeah? Because I'll tell you what people don't realise. They don't realise. Well done, Lisego. What, what they, they don't realise is it's very hard to define what's in and out of the category. Is Levi's Suits a brand extension because it's in suits uh, rather than jeans? Or is it a line extension because it's all in menswear? And the answer is it's perceptual. If you think suits and jeans are kind of the same, the damage will be much greater than if you think, oh, no, suits are very different from jeans. So that added complication needs to be wired in. So the answer to your question is, yeah, it depends, it depends, but it's it's question of the week because it's a really advanced point. Well done. And, and your other point's pretty advanced too. Uh, Roz Bowman, now we're into the four P's of the marketing mix. We're closer to my home ground. Yes, tactics, which is market mix modelling. As an analyst, I'd be keen to hear how you view the use of MMM, triple M, specifically around whether you'd advise applying a study, should it come only when the four Ps are being planned or applied and referenced at other points in the diagnosis or strategy. Please share any good experiences. All right, for everyone else's benefit, Roz. So there's two kinds of triple M. There's marketing mix modeling, which Roz is talking about, which is messing around with all four components of the tactical mix to see what's the optimum mix. And then there's media mix modeling, which is just the promotional P the comm stuff, but they work on the same basis. We're going to use a regression analysis. We're going to build a model and we're going to work out essentially looking back over the recent history. Let's say the last two years, what's the best combination of these things to produce the most money and and be the most successful. Um, I, I think of it Roz, if I'm honest with you for my exposure I I think of it like you know when they measure the speed of a tennis ball I think of it like that it can give me a very accurate read on that whether I can use it in real time to play tennis is a different question yeah but it's certainly I mean I know if you take Guinness for Guinness was just voted brand of the year last yesterday at the marketing week awards rightfully so Diageo have got their own triple m system and they use it to make changes they learn from it i think when you know what's important and where what levels they should be at it obviously makes you better it's just not the panacea that so many people think it is i mean i've you're going to disagree with me roz if i hire three different econometric firms to do an mmm analysis of the same brand i'm going to get three completely different answers and that does trouble me a bit but generally speaking yeah. It's a much more advanced approach than last-touch, first-touch attribution in comms, for example. Um, Brand lift studies are very good, but they only look at one particular variable, whereas the ability of Triple M to look at everything and tell you what what to do, yeah, it's good. It's just not as good as I think people think it is. Alex Wilkinson. I work in finance, and we track NPS on a monthly basis. At present, we send out the NPS immediately after someone purchases a policy. Is this the best approach or should we be sending the MPS out to a sample of customers that's more reflective of our base? It depends, Alex. So if you follow what Reicheld says and what Bain said, every touch point you send out an MPS score. You speak to someone on the phone, MPS at the end of the call. I think that's annoying and overkill. I actually think the way you're doing it is pretty good. That's how we're going to do it with you when we finish um, Mini-NBA. We just ask every customer to give us the NPS score having gone through the course. And we use that data to see if this course, you were as happy as other courses quantitatively and qualitatively why you gave us the score you gave us. So I'd say to you, doing it right, don't overthink NPS. You know, it's not predictive of future business growth, but it's a bloody good metric along with other metrics. And I think you're doing it the right way. Sarah Colquitt. Me again, pretend you work at a company where the overwhelming pricing strategy has been COGS plus desired margin. Mm. Basically cost plus, right? And then you do this course and learn about value-based pricing. Do you A, try and reprice existing products at the next price review, keeping in mind if this leads to significant increases or decreases, it will lead to headaches, apply value-based pricing to future products, or c other? And what happens when value-based pricing leads to inadequate margins based on targets handed down from higher-ups? I guess the answer is to show the higher-ups the research leading to resulting price and have some difficult discussions. You got it, right? So first of all, yeah, when you do value-based pricing and you find out that you won't make enough money, what it tells you is not to do it or find a different way to do it because it's not as if you can charge more than what the value is because people just won't buy it. So that's the first point, yeah. Your general point, though, is I think the first stage you need to do is go and do it and and find out what the actual value levels are versus the prices because so much depends on that, Sarah. And if you know the differential, you can then act for the next stage, which is what do we do about it, right? See what it's worth. In a lot of cases, you have what's called menu costs, which means the cost of changing the price isn't worth the tiny differential between value and actual price. But in other cases, it's worth a fortune. But you don't know that until you go, do the work, find out what the value perceptions are, and then move on to the next stage, which is, okay, what's the price that we could charge? And then the pricing that we want to use to do this. Magana, <clears throat> I want to get your perspective on how strategy first, tactics later, applies if you're a startup. The usual narrative around this is that you start with a basic idea of the product you want to build, and then you test it with the market. Often pre-financing founders don't have enough money to do deep and detailed market research. Also, there's time pressure to launch, especially when tech-like AI is launched and there's a sort of gold rush to get the product out. Post-finance is extreme pressure from VCs or others to develop the product at high velocity. And this leads to zero attention to brand strategy. Any perspective on how to tackle these challenges? Yeah, and began it. <coughs> You're just like everyone else. There's always good reasons not to talk to customers and they're always bogus, Okay. I agree when you're pre-financed, it's not like you can do a massive survey. But you don't have to. The point is, I don't like this binary. We haven't got time or money to talk to customers. We do. Yeah. The, the 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 right approach is at every stage of the development of your new startup, get your ass in the market and don't stay in your garage just looking at the startup. Okay. When we did mini MBA, I had, I was, I absolutely applied that logic. I had this idea, nobody liked the idea in sort of the uh, investor world and blah, blah, blah. But I would talk to potential customers literally over a beer. I talked to about 20 people over a beer who were my kind of good marketer that's never been trained in marketing, never done an MBA. And I'd literally say to them, hey, by the way, can I buy a beer? And they're like, yeah, what's going on? So imagine if I did this, what would you pay? What would you think, blah, blah, blah. That didn't cost me anything. It didn't take a lot of time, but it really aligned my thinking at an early phase. That's the kind of research you need. Um, and it doesn't cost money, but it, it aligns you in those early stages. Siobhan, hello from Stormy London. A couple of quick questions. Smart pricing, is this the same as dynamic pricing? Yes. In the organizations I've worked at, mainly where CC to be filled, dynamic hasn't really been used as a research tool but more just to ensure bums on seats and then more profit as the demand increases. That's okay. Second, where does donation come into this? For example, if you've just bought a ticket for a show and then at the end in your basket asked to donate, many of the organizations I've worked in set a suggestion. Obviously, this isn't for the product the customer was interested in, but it is an extra. Do you apply the same process? No. If you want to look at that area of like, how do we get people to donate, Siobhan, I suggest you go and have a look at the behavioural economics world and how you frame the donation and the suggestion of donation. It's a whole different industry. Go and have a look at Rory Sutherland's stuff around behavioural economics. It'll blow your mind. It's often overdone, but in this area of donations, it, yeah, it can be it can be huge. Hannah Ward, hi Mark, me again. I finished the pricing module and have one other question. What pricing model would big supermarkets with thousands of SKUs use? As the Van Vestendel pricing model surely wouldn't work. No. The supermarkets in the UK are also constantly discounting and price matching with each other. So, they do, do they employ selective pricing techniques to certain products to drive the baskets bigger? I feel like big brands like Tesco must know what they're doing, although you never see a blanket 20% off your Tesco shop. No, they absolutely know what they're doing. The, the one gift they've got, Hannah, is they can use experimentation. So they, you know, I forget, Tesco used to have one in Manchester, maybe they still do. It was basically a fake store with real products. They send customers in and they'd be manipulating prices to see what happened to baskets as they've bought. Um, that's a big part of it when you've got big questions. And then just generally, you can run uh, non, what's called non-discriminatory price experiments. So most retailers are pretty loath, you know, putting prices up in one region versus another and seeing what happens because someone's losing out and they can get busted. But it's also, Amazon do this as well now. You can run disc, uh, non-discriminatory experiments, which means you run all your bananas at this price and then for a week you run it at that price. And you're constantly testing and learning and with the discount cards, you're able to join the dots of who's buying it. And yeah, those companies know more about pricing than anyone. Angela Murphy couple of questions. I'm looking into share of search, but one challenge is the company I work for has a very generic name. There are dozens of other companies with the same name. Any advice on how to choose the most important search combinations that include the brand name? I, I'm not an expert in this area, Angela. My understanding is in some cases, you can pre-specify in the search the name in a certain setting, but I, I don't know. Number two, in the Levi's case, we see the team ignore the focus group feedback, go and launch the products, and end up failing. But then in the case of Tyrrells, raising their prices by 29%, we hear that the campaign did terribly in audience testing, and yet they ended up succeeding. Was Tyrrells the exception rather than the rule when turning their backs on everything they'd learned from research? Yeah, it's different. Um, if Tyrrells had had a new potato chip and got that kind of feedback, it wouldn't have sold. Um, I think the difference is when you pre-test advertising in a qualitative way, the monkeys are in charge of the gym and you can't trust the results. There are better ways. to. If Tyrrells had pre-tested the campaign with System 1, with an animatic, System 1, I bet you would have come back and said, it's a great ad, Do you want to run it. Do you know what I mean? So I think it's the nature of the pre-testing is the issue, not whether pre-testing works or not. Lucy Hopkins. I'll just do a time check. We're 40 minutes in. Yeah, we might make the hour. Lucy Hopkins. I'm loving this course. Well, that's good. A big thank you. My question is actually about segmentation. I work for a workspace provider in New in South Wales. We also run a range of startups and scale-up support programs specializing in serving tech, digital, and the creative industries. I've tried to work it out how to put what I've learned into practice when it comes to market research and segmentation. I'm on the right track if I take the following approach. One, do market research to get a picture of all businesses in Wales. Two, zoom in on South Wales. Three, segment South Wales by industry. Four, identify lucrative segments. Five, run focus groups. Okay, 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 come back out. Um, nearly. I would suggest to you, if you're in South Wales, that's the whole market, okay? I would do a meaningful, actionable grid where I slice up the businesses and segment them in South Wales using secondary data only. Having identified then the segments that you really want to go after, I would go and do not focus groups, but ethnography in the target segments you want to go after. And that's how I would build my funnel, my segment portrait, work on the positioning and everything else. Try it in that order. I think it will work very well. Marta Ullman, very curious about your opinion. The new CEO of Unilever announced that they will not force fit brand purpose across their entire portfolio. Do you think that this failure of brand purpose is caused by the lack of relevance in matching purpose with a brand? or rather by the wrong approach to brand purpose as a way for financial growth. In my opinion, real brand purpose is a cost, as proven by Patagonia. Or maybe this is the perfect example of our marketing bubble getting caught up in the doing good thing. And then Marla says, oh, I've just found out you've already answered my question on LinkedIn. I'll post the, yeah, I have a very, sp- so I, I think the new CMO is right. Um, I will post my, so I mean, I'm not saying he read my stuff. I wrote an article about eight months ago, basically saying this is what they should do, and that's what he's just done. So I'll post the article because it'll—it's the best way for everyone to catch up on it. Um, I think he's doing the right thing, uh, Master. Again, one more. But regarding objectives, conversion analysis—does selecting and working on bottlenecks mean that we're not mean that we do not work at other stages? If our problem is with conversion at, from consideration to sale. Do we forget about building uh, awareness at all? Yeah, it's up to you. It depends what your funnel looks like. Generally speaking, there's certain activities that will just maintain the general health of the funnel. When we talk about full funnel marketing, my worry is it tells people to go after everything. I think instead of that, what you're doing is devising specific tactics for a specific bottleneck for the year. And then in a year's time, if some of these other steps have started to fade, It's a call-out to then fix them again. So I would focus and make choices to fix on the various specific bottlenecks and then wait for a year to see what the other ones look like. Lasego, our champion of this week. In the early stages of the course, you said the prime directive of marketing is market orientation and representing the voice of the consumer. I have to admit the pricing module is where I struggled the most to reconcile that idea practically given that pricing is most likely the area of marketing has the least influence in a company. So where would be a good place to start if the goal was to affect pricing strategy? Well, the best place to start, as they is to have data on price perceptions and value and bring that into the pricing discussion. So the voice of the consumer actually influences the pricing decisions. Debbie Marlow, a couple of questions regarding pricing. One, I'm curious to know where loyalty schemes sit in terms of pricing. In your opinion, are they equivalent to discounting? No. If so, does the payoff of loyalty offset the impact of lowering prices? It, it can do. I mean, the real reason for loyalty schemes is data, right, for most companies. It, we portray them as being loyalty, but the reality is we're getting data out of these companies. Um, but I don't know. Sometimes yes, sometimes no, Debbie. It really depends. Number two, you shared the research that helped you to price the mini MBA in 2020. Having such a relatable example really helped my understanding. I believe the price increased to one five nine five, and then increased to eighteen ninety five. I think that's about right. Does this mean you've conducted ongoing pricing research, or once the price is determined, can a percentage be added for a period of time? No, we've done a couple of different pieces of research. I mean, inflation in the UK was it was and is running at about seven eight percent, right? So we had that issue, and it really—I'm not just saying it to you guys. It really did sort of our costs the year after we put prices up. We ended up making less money, and I was like, "How's that possible?" And they're like, "Because all of our costs for everything have gone up." So the UK was a bit of a basket case there for a couple of years. But we did. We went to the market again, and we repeated the research, and we found that we that we, we, were, we did have room to go a bit higher. I was worried we were, we were going to get addicted to it. So I, what I said with that last price increase is that's it, and at least for the foreseeable future, we'll we'll take the inflation and we'll eat it. Um. So that's what we did. Number three, is there a way to beat the smart pricing system? I have in mind holidays researched online. They definitely increase every time I take a look. Uh, not if they're smart enough, Debbie. They're, they're usually smart enough to avoid all of that. It's a nice thought, but it's usually not worth it. Uh, Debbie Mallow again. In Conjoin, does the order of the options presented impact the choices made? And if so, how is it avoid, avoided? It does affect the choices, but they uh, vary, what's called very max rotation. So every time you look at the options, the computer will automatically give you random ones. And it starts to guess at, but it presents them randomly. It's an important part of conjoint. Um, and Debbie, last question. Uh, in the pricing lecture, you referenced the module on branding, but I don't see a module on this topic. Has branding been lost to the branding mini MBA? It has, yeah. Of the topics covered here, are you able to come out on, on your advice to a company looking to enhance its brand by implementing a sustainability agenda? And how is it best to go about embedding the organization's sustainability agenda within place? It's too big a question, Deb. You know, it's huge. I'm going to post my column on uh, partly on sustainability and ESG as a follow-up. Have a read of that. Not that it's going to answer your question, but have a read of that. Hannah Shepley, I'm really enjoying the course. I have a question about briefing. You mentioned the need to do so properly. Have you got a framework you can use or give practical examples? Well, I have Hannah. I co-wrote with the guys from Bear Briefs the IPA's briefing uh, guide, which I will which I will attach to our follow-up materials on Monday. Michael Hardiman, do you have a take on how frequently a brand should measure MPS? I uh, I don't like doing it recurrently, as I've said, Mike. Um, I I think doing it at the end of something or once a year is the right way, and that's the way we we would do it though. Bain and and Rykel recommend doing it all the time. Michael, again, just one more on last week's topic. You mentioned goals or objectives should always be ambitious. Between a pointless 3% uplift in whatever you want to go for as a KPI and the audacious 100% growth, do you have a process or way of working when setting ambitions and working out what's realistic? What factors do you take into account? Uh, There's a couple. Um, You can look at, at history. With experience, you get a better handle on it. But the aforementioned Tracksuit produce a really, really useful report, Michael, which is by sector. Anonymously, they show what different companies have achieved with their objective setting based on their budget spend. So you can really get a sense of what's possible. So I'll I'll put that into the follow-up material um, and and share it. It really gives you guidance for what you can and can't expect to achieve. Niku, I'm really enjoying the course. I have two questions. One, I work for a B2B company. We don't transact online. We sell our products to architects through our on-the-ground sales force. I have budget approved for research to find out what our awareness and consideration levels are. But until then, can anything else help me understand where we sit? For example, can unique website visits be seen as consideration? No. Can anything give me a clue to awareness? All I have now is market penetration numbers. The only thing you can do is you can look at share of search. So share of search gives you um, an index of top of funnel, awareness and consideration, right, relative to competitors. And you can look over time as it gone up or down. Have a look at the share of search stuff from Les Binette. That might help you. Um, and thanks to Adrian for jumping in there too. Catherine, I have a question vaguely related to module six. Okay. Um, I'm responsible for the multiple for multiple international markets, UK, France and North America. And you said in a QA that you'd treat each market separately. I would. The rationale is obvious, but it's so much work. <laughs> and it can be overwhelming. Have you got any advice on how to prioritize the markets? Do I start with the biggest prize, the easiest impact, or the markets that I'm most familiar with? Or am I just looking at this in the wrong way? Mm. It's the wrong way. Instead, should I be working across all markets at the same time and just accept that each step in a diagnosis, strategy, and tactics will take longer? P.S. I'm loving the course, and I'm already worrying about the post-December void. Can you recommend any good books on podcasts? Come and do the brand course, Catherine. Um, yeah, I can't let you get away with it, Catherine. I can't let you say to me, okay, I do UK, France, and America, but I'm going to focus on France next year. I think you're better off having a less complex marketing plan and doing it for all three countries than having a really detailed one for one country, okay? And do less on the diagnosis for all three than doing it in detail for one. That's the right way to approach it. I'll tell you one other thing. I mean, the people of Tourism Australia have a good approach, right? They have very general data from each of the countries where their tourists might come from, and they build a very simple clear strategy on who we're targeting, what's our position, what are our objectives for each of the markets, I think it's the way to go. Catherine again. I have a question. Oh, that was Catherine. Sorry, that was Catherine's question. Um, Harry Hunt. You'll be sick of my name popping up. Harry, unless you've asked me 25 more questions, this is the first question we've had from you. I'm really sorry for the number of questions I'm sending in. Harry, you've asked less questions than a lot of these losers. Don't worry about it. And also, you're paying me. But these two are my final ones. Pricing research. is the, Wait see see. there's eight, 90 questions from Harry down here, right? Pricing research. Is this something that should take place separate to the main market research, or can it be included? My hope is at the end of the course, you can do backwards market research for the whole thing and put the Van Vestendorp questions into your overall survey. In a previous Q&A, you said market research doesn't need to be done annually, but segmentation should be updated every year. Did I say that? How often should full market research be done annually? Okay, just with myself. Do an annual bit of market research and pricing should be done as part of it. Misa Tan, we're a B2B medical device business. Using our product and service means the customers have an advantage over the competitors to increase their efficiency and reduce complexity. Do we still ask the same question for MPS? Yes. I would think that they will not recommend us to peers as they'll be sharing their trade secrets. So you can change who they recommend it to, right, to fellow colleagues, um, but it should be the same question. There is advocacy because we're finding that KOLs uh, work to drive awareness and conversion. Yeah, don't, don't change it. It's a theoretical advocacy, So You can change it to would you recommend it to other colleagues um, inside your company, for example. Number two, do you think increased their efficiency and reduced complexity, hence increased profitability, is good enough job to be done or is it too vague i mean you've got three arguments my challenge to you misa is is one more powerful than three yeah if i said if we just went with we'll increase your profitability does that win more because of its focus than the efficiency and complexity um it's a question for the market though four what do you think about the model of companies like shane they offer cheap trendy fast fashion clothing their business model is online and they collect the data of customers and their searches to offer as many products as possible. You can pretty much find anything you want. Can it be considered the new age of product development? Yeah, maybe. But, I mean, it, as long as it suits their competencies, sure. Sarah Green, the first woman I ever, ever had a crush on. Not you, Sarah, unless you're a 70-year-old XTV tv presenter. Um, you were right. I've loved the pricing module, and I did not expect to enjoy it so much. I have two questions. Taking on board your price position of never discount. What are your thoughts on Black Friday and January sales? Should businesses use these times to clear out products? Yeah, there's no update on this, but I suspect you're right. There's sort of a, a greater tolerance for it. So I don't think it would damage your brand as much to be discounted on Black Friday. Obviously, the margin damage to profits is the same, but it could be the place where if you do have products you want to get rid of, that would be the obvious place to do it. Two. What are your thoughts on inflating prices for a period to show bigger discounts later? Troubling. Example, after my pricing course, I was in the supermarket. A big pot of branded butter was shown to be 50% off, but the new price was only a little lower than what I felt was usual pricing. Now, you get yourself into trouble there, Sarah, because what happens is consumers... So first of all, there's a legal requirement to price it at that price for a certain amount of time, or you're getting tons of trouble which means you lose sales and then you gain sales, but the consumer then waits for another discount. So I think it's cheating, and it cheats both the consumer and the organisation. Jonathan Trong, Hey, Jonathan. I forgot the QA for positioning was run a day earlier, so I missed out on getting my question in. Um, I wanted to circle back on the kitchen sink school of positioning where you shared some info on your midi MBA. Ranking benefits, yeah. I noticed that CPD hours was ranked last on your scale, but I remembered it was included in your mini NBA brochure a few times. This got me thinking. We put so much effort into our in-market messages and considering our position to a few key points, but sometimes non-marketing materials like product docs end up being customer touch points. Yeah, should I be concerned that a doc that may be owned by the sales team has too many key benefits? Well, I wouldn't be, Jonathan. I mean, in theory, you can you can educate them on exactly the same issue, right? That more is not more. Kate Yao, hi Mark, apologies for not submitting the question in the previous, you'd have to apologize to me, Kate Yao, that's fine, put it in now. Um, If a company is predominantly focused on a product-oriented approach, how can they transition to a market-oriented strategy while not modifying existing marketing elements, such as the website and brand positioning? Market-oriented brand messaging differs significantly from product-oriented messaging, which may not align with our brand guidelines. Do you have any examples or case studies to illustrate this shift? And I'm thoroughly enjoying the course. Yeah, look, I don't think it's necessarily case studies you're looking for, Kate. Um, and Adrian's given you a nice example straight away. I think it's more the philosophical change to being. We're not just selling this product, but we're trying to understand from a customer point of view what they're buying. I think that's at the heart of all of this and And to be honest, the key thing is to get on with it and, and c- gather the research which gets that perspective in about the product. That's what you need to be doing. Niku, sorry, me again. I'm looking at the modified funnel. I'm confused about the nudge before the connect. How can people have intent and comms awareness before they found us and connected with us? I like this modified model, fits really well with my company, but I find the metrics confusing. Can you clarify? Look, I wouldn't worry about it, Niku. Here's the point. Don't copy that funnel or any other. Build your own Customize your own funnel based on the six or seven steps that take you through the process. That's the key. Everyone makes this mistake. They go, here's a good funnel. Here's a better funnel. We've got a funnel. Every funnel should be different because you have different products, different journeys, different customers. Build the one that makes sense for you. And that's the one to go with. Nicoleta Olympia. Hi, Mark. This course is amazing. I love every module, article and podcast. But module seven is just brilliant. Okay. Uh, It it wires my whole brain, and I now have tons of questions and discussion ideas. Are are you on a lot of caffeine at the moment, Nicoletta Olympia? It sounds like you've been drinking coffee. Anyway, do, do carry on with your effusive praise. I'll leave here the top three questions. I've worked in market research for a decade, and I've heard of jobs to be done only in the past three to four years. From your experience with other marketers, would you say the approach is not common? It's not common in marketing. It's been common in strategy for a long time. Um, and that's the, that's the reason why it didn't come from marketing Nicoletta it came from, from the strategy literature number two on the Levi's case study do you think that co-branding might have been a good approach for the new product very good suggestion yes there are many things you could do my favourite recommendations yet a co-brand with a product that's known for this maybe um, the other one that made a lot more sense was targeting the queue the different queue the guy that was playing basketball um, and go after him instead would probably have worked too um, and finally three the touch point research is a very burning topic many companies are searching for ways of maximizing ROI touch points what in your opinion or experience is a good type of research well I invented one and we're going to use it on you in a couple of weeks when you end the course I asked for verbatim touches I then asked you to rate how it made you feel about mini MBA and then we look at the sequence that they experience on average by people. And also we do a little correlation between if you're a promoter, which of the things are driving being a promoter versus a detractor. You'll see it play out and then steal it. Steve Wilcox, I'm really enjoying the course. I've learned loads. I have two questions. At the risk of sounding tight, do you have any suggestions on how to get a copy of Basic Marketing and Managerial Approach? It's listed on Amazon for thirty-five dollars which seems a bit pricey. Um. uh is it worth that? It's probably worth it, Steve. It's probably worth it. Uh, too. In a previous Q and A, you briefly mentioned Australian brands cannot be successful in both Sydney and Melbourne at the same time. Do you have any examples of this? Yeah. Um, Melbourne Business School and AGSM, um, are a good example of two fifty-year-old institutions that do the same thing but don't play in each other's ballpark. Radio stations are the big ones, Steve. So if you're in the UK, you have Capital, but you have Radio 2, you have Kiss. You have loads of national radio stations. In Australia, you can't have... There are a couple, I guess, of exceptions, Hamish and Andy, etc. But most cities have their own radio morning radio shows just in Adelaide, which at first you think that's crazy, but then you find out Australia is a really weird, complex place. And then you've got beer. Um, you drink 2 here in Sydney a lot. You don't drink any 2 ever in Melbourne. You drink VB. Uh, that really holds up. I mean, even the sports are different, right? You will never see a game of rugby league on the TV in Melbourne ever. Uh, you will see it 24-7 in Sydney. It's a very... Con- Australians have this thing about, you know, well, it's not a very complicated culture. It's very complicated culture. It's fascinating when you get to know it. Not as straightforward as it appears at all. There's a song called Flame Trees uh, by Cold Chisel. I'll play it to you. Come on, I'll play it to you. Wait, wait. wait, chisel. Cold Chisel. Flame Trees. You ready? I'll have to play it loud so you can hear it which is an old Aussie-occa song, right? I'll get Jimmy Bands on. Hang on, sorry. Look. You'll hear Jimmy Barnes singing, right? Here we go. Just a little swing back. It So it sounds really aussie ocker, right? And it sounds like, you know yeah let's get rocking and all that and you don't really follow the lyrics right and then if there was a remake of it made by Sarah Blasco right um which I'm going to now try and play for you and if you listen to the lyrics when it's slowed down and Sarah Blasco does it you realise what an emotional lovely song it is right hang on kids are driving so I'll probably just by me, sweet boy, I'll just say there in familiar signs. We shed some mystery. This town, see what I mean? So, uh, this was my moment 10 years ago when I worked out that Australia wasn't how it appeared, and actually. Quite a sensitive Jimmy Barnes singing, ah, you got a you know, you got a tree. You don't realize what he's really singing about his heartbreak and missing his old girlfriend and his old town and all that. And it's very sensitive. So I think Australia hides the complexity and sensitivity better than any culture I've ever seen. Anyway, what are we talking about? Um, the musical interlude there. Um, Catherine says, with Levi's, I'm keen to know what they could have done. Cancel the product, change the product, change the targeting, uh, uh, change the target. It seems like Teleclassics was at a dead end. Well, I mean, there wasn't a lot you could do to fix that situation. The famous ending, which I think I mentioned in the case, was Goldstein took over um, and and ended up producing Dockers, which was a success. But a lot of things were changed. So I I think the general lesson there was you needed to retreat and revisit a lot of things. It wasn't a small fix. Uh, Amelia, hi Mark, can NPS be used in our smart objectives if we want to improve satisfaction? Absolutely, we've had it as an objective before. A big bank I worked for had an NPS objective, not because NPS matters, but because it was a good proxy measure for other things. Michael Hardeman, great session on pricing, really some good angles to improve pricing. You mentioned the key metric of the percentage of products sold, sub RRP. What would be a percentage where you'd be okay with and take no action? a percentage where you'd be alerted and need to take the first actions and a percentage where direct escalation is needed i mean obviously the ideal state is no sub rrp that never happens i would say to you there are it's an easier answer i would say mike that if you're a company that sells more product sub rrp than at rrp there's a problem and that's much more common than you might think I would say 30 40% of companies sell their products sub-recommended retail price. Harry Hunt. Ah, here's the Harry Hunt cascade. How would a company that charges hourly rates approach price setting? Or is there no difference? Some of our customers will have one hour a week, some will have 30. Not only are different customers paying different amounts, the weekly and monthly amounts are usually recurring and much higher than the initial cost per hour. And it's the hourly rate that all of our customers want to know. There's not one free like with the mini MBA. So it doesn't seem as straightforward. What's that then? There's not one or oh, not one fee like the mini MBA. Yeah, gotcha. Um I, I don't think it should change too much, Harry. I think you can still do the same research, but you keep you couch it in that hourly amount, right? Um otherwise, I don't think there's any big change. Harry's at it again. Presuming Net Promoter Score is only for existing previous customers and not non-customers. Yes. For example, I would rate Aston Martin quite highly, but I've never owned one. If you owned one, Harry, your Net Promoter Score would probably go down. Um, But yeah, you're absolutely right. You can only do it on people that have had an experience. Andrew King. I worked at two companies that primarily set their prices on competitor plus minus model. Mm. E.g. plus 10% of competitor A for the same product. I presume this is very similar to Cost Plus um, and has the same limitations, but would you say there are additional drawbacks? Yeah, it's equally dumb to Cost Plus, and it has the extra dumbness that your competitor might actually be completely wrong too, and you're just assuming they're not wrong. So, uh, yeah, it's it's probably even more dumb than Cost Plus. Harry, does conjoint pricing only work for companies that sell online? No, you can do a conjoint for anything. British Airways did a very famous conjoint to work out what the ideal uh, business class seat would be like and then clearly completely ignored the results and did what they did instead. Harry Hunt. Here's Harry Hunt stuff. I'm bombarding you again, but I missed the deadline. Okay. Uh, our company increases prices every year without fail. How does that impact my approach to pricing or doesn't it? Presumably at some point we may end up at a point where we've overpriced, reflecting on Module 8. I guess it's my job to demonstrate whether we're pricing ourselves out of the market. I mean, with inflation at the moment, Harry, we're all increasing prices. Um, It depends on the amount. Yeah, so what you're looking at each year is is the perception of price changing irrespective of what the price change might be. Tom Miller, this is a great course. Uh, I'm glad you've worked that out, Tom. Thank you for being such a dedicated teacher. Fine, I mean, it's mostly digital, Mark, not real, Mark, but that's fine, Tom, thank you. I appreciate them pulling you a bit back from the coalface, but could you talk a little bit about the relationship between an organization's brand and its reputation? What's the best way to think about these two terms? Are they more similar or different? Which is or should be more important? Um, reputation is just the PR industry's word for brand. The end. There really doesn't need to be two terms for it. Um, brand is much bigger and all-encompassing. And is usually the one we use in marketing. Tom, um, reputation is fine, but more old-fashioned and more PR laden. Adrian Coe, I'm loving this course. We've got a lot of fans. This everyone's gone. Everyone's got happy all of a sudden. I'm not. I'm not unhappy about this. Um, before you ever mentioned aspiring to look like Colin Firth, I noticed some resemblance. Hey, you can come back again, Adrian. Right? You can come back again. If I can get to three percent of Colin Firth, happy man, uh, beautiful man, Colin Firth not just physically, beautifully, beautiful generally, that when he was going through that divorce to that super attractive Italian woman that he married, um, I really felt for him because he just looked pained. You know what I mean? He looked really pained. And then what was great is he eventually, I don't want to get this wrong, I'm pretty sure, he eventually ended up hooking up with a woman that was, wait for this, the same age as him. And Colin Firth was like 60, right? So Colin Firth could presumably snag some 23 year old model right and Colin Firth wasn't interested in that he found this absolutely gorgeous 62 year old woman that he'd known blah 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 it was like a next door neighbor or something imagine pulling Colin Firth and I always think like him and Kiana Reeves are both about the same age both have and I know this is again scandalous women that are the same age as them right and obviously could date younger people if they wanted if they wanted to sort of fool themselves into thinking they're going to live forever. So obviously that's an admirable quality in people, not dating teenagers. Anyway, we're off the point. Although my previous company was a category creator, the category became extremely crowded. We were constantly forced into features versus features, comparisons by our competitors, and they competed against us with heavy discounting. Fortunately, our leadership wanted to shift the company to an adjacent category, known for higher deal sizes. We had multiple products who were able to differentiate at a product suite level, even though we might lose the features battle in point product comparisons. In your experience, once a category becomes crowded and you're competing against big discounters, is there no turning back? I think what you did is brilliant. I don't think it always has to be that severe. In some cases, you can still find difference, subcategories, things. Um, Uh, you you know there are other routes to competing on price but what you've done is one of the great moves and I think it makes perfect sense but you don't always have to do something so major Steve Wilcox I get that the focus group feedback about the Levi's brand moving into suits wasn't positive but shouldn't the initial research performed by Levi's prior to this have raised potential problems about moving this new market well to be fair to them Steve no They didn't know they were going into suits and they didn't know that they were going in there with the Levi's brand. So you can sort of see how they got into that conundrum. Nicoletta. I'm not sure if anyone else has asked this, but could you give us a suggestion on a good book or two on price and pricing? Let's hold it for now, Nicoletta. We'll cover it in the final... uh, After the exam, we'll do our wrap-up module and I'll give you a whole bunch of suggestions then. Let's do it then. Uh, Emmeline. What do you think MPS works less? Why do you think MPS works less for food categories than services when you say, I'm not going to recommend it for a chocolate bar? Um, I just think chocolate bars are a category where you wouldn't expect advocacy. Like if I came up to you, Emmeline, and we were in a, a restaurant or something, and I said to you, hey, I know we don't know each other, but I really want to recommend Cadbury Whisper Bars. They're really good. You'd be like, that guy's a lunatic. Do you know what I mean? Rather than if I said, hey, I tell you what, my bank's great. You should join my bank. It would make more sense. So the reason I don't think it works is because in low-involvement categories like that, I don't think advocacy is a naturalistic thing. So I don't think it works as well. Alex Morris, in your opinion, is customer trade marketing best reported in traditional FMCG, b 2 b to c into sales or marketing, and why? Ooh, that's a tricky one. That's a tricky one. Look, uh, I hate to do this, Alex. It really depends. Um, It depends on the nature of the company and the business. Uh, I couldn't give you a straight answer. It can be either. It really does depend. It's a very good question, though. And finally, Nicoletta is back. Two questions on discounting. How does the do not discount rule work in countries that are keen on negotiating and where keeping the same price is actually somehow seen as an offence? I mean, all right, if you're in a kasbah in, you know, in Morocco, then I get that it would be offensive. But with those exceptions, Nicoletta, I'm not, you know, I'm, I don't think it's too much of an issue. Number two, if I start selling carpets in Marrakesh, I, yeah, okay. Number two, I, I'm sorry to be facetious, but you get my point. Two, if I didn't get why in 2016 Musk was complaining... Oh, sorry, I didn't get why in 2016 Musk was complaining in that specific situation by saying something in the lines of we should not discount fully functional cars. Isn't actually the time dimension, i.e. the time until final delivery, a benefit of the product, even if not a core benefit, that someone who gets the car later than promised does deserve a discount? No, no. the point Musk was making before he lost his mind, when he was my hero, was, you know, it doesn't matter if there's a delay in getting your car, that's tough. You know, we'll get it to you. You're not giving anyone a discount, right? For any reason. We can all find an excuse because we're selling carpets in Marrakesh or because there's been a delay. You get a discount. Don't do that. There are all these other things you can do. Well, I'll give you a free, you know, kebab or I'll give you, you know, I'll, you know, I'll give you a Tesla t shirt, whatever. It, 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 it's, it's, we go straight to this margin shredding thing, and that's the problem. All right, all right, great questions. Uh, I'll follow up Monday with some materials. Um, uh, at this stage, have a good weekend. We're going to the last P's next week, and then in the Q&A in two weeks' time, I'll talk to you about the exam then, okay? Have a lovely weekend. Enjoy our last two classes. I'll see you next week. We're going into... Well, I'm going into communications and IMC. That'll be fun. I'll see you at the other end for our final Q&A in a couple of weeks. <laughs>